0: Welcome to the Image Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Mesman. In every episode, we're exploring the intersection of art and faith. We'll talk to poets and writers, filmmakers, musicians, and visual artists who grapple with the mystery at the heart of religious experience. In the novel, The Incendiaries by R.O. Kwan, a young woman at an elite American university is drawn into a religious cult. Phoebe Lynn is wealthy, beloved, and popular she's also overcome with grief. She never tells anyone that she blames herself for her mother's recent death. Over the course of the book, Phoebe is captivated by a charismatic former student who draws her into what turns out to be a group of violent extremists. Most of this story comes to us through Will, Phoebe's working-class boyfriend, a scholarship student who transferred from Bible college. Will has lost his faith but as agnostic Phoebe falls under the spell of a new kind of fundamentalism, he finds himself struggling to confront what he's worked so hard to escape. It was clear to me when I read the novel that Quan has an insider's knowledge of evangelical Christian culture in the United States. She sees it with clear eyes, but with no lack of love. She writes Will without a hint of cynicism, and she doesn't treat loss of faith as an inevitable part of his coming of age. She reveals it to be a source of grief. Will says People with no experience of God tend to think that leaving the faith would be liberation, a flight from guilt, rules. But what I couldn't forget was the joy I'd known loving Him. The Incendiaries is a classic campus novel in many ways, but it takes faith and the lack of faith and the longing for faith deadly seriously. I talked to Aro Kwan about her own experiences of Christian culture. She once thought she'd be a pastor, but then she lost her own faith, and she turned to books as solace. She didn't find much there that reflected her own experience. She says she wrote the novel she would have wanted to read as a 17-year-old girl. I think that's what was so remarkable to me about picking up the incendiaries. I can't remember a more sincere literary treatment of issues that I've grappled with so deeply in my own life, combining the experience of Christian fundamentalism with the deep grief for a lost parent. This is a novel about faith, but it's also a novel about grief. The book turns on the morning not just of an absent God, but of absent mothers, fathers, friends, and lovers. Laura Miller, writing in The New Yorker, called it a rare depiction of belief that doesn't kill the thing it aspires to by trying too hard. It makes a space and then steps away to let the mystery in. experience of religious faith?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, so I grew up very religious. Um, I was so religious that uh, throughout, throughout high school until I was 17, I, pretty much my entire life plan was to become a pastor or a missionary. Um, and then when I was 17, I lost my faith. And so that, that sort of went out the window.
0: Wow. What, what church did you grow up in?
1: Uh, so I had the I had a mishmash of um of of a religious upbringing. I my family is Catholic. Um, they're all they're all still very Catholic. Um, so I was raised Catholic. But then when I was in junior high, um, all of my friends, almost all of my friends, were Protestant. Um, I'm Korean American, and I had a lot of Korean American friends. Um, and my friends um, went to churches where it was the kind of sort of there were a lot of like off brand, charismatic, Uh um, a lot of varieties of Christian faith. So there was a lot of singing and dancing and talking in tongues and falling to the ground. Um, So I was very drawn to that. I mean, I think Uh it's something that a lot of people don't realize about that kind of Christianity is that it's really fun. Um, Yeah. And that Uh can be terribly appealing, I think, especially when you're 13, 12, 14 trying to figure figure yourself out. So, um, so I was much more of a Protestant um, when I was when I was in high school.
0: That's so I'm nodding in recognition because I also was raised Catholic and kind of against my will was my family left the Catholic church when I was around 14 and moved into a Pentecostal non-denominational environment. So I'm just nodding along with you. Um, Very similar experience and trajectory, which makes a lot of sense because I was, as I was reading the incendiaries, I just felt this deep recognition of you, of your voice as an author. It was really clear to me when reading that you spoke the language of faith that you had a real insider's knowledge of a kind of evangelical Christian culture that so many of our contemporaries don't speak. And that was really interesting to me. I could really see that in the book that you spoke the language of faith in a way that it seemed like only someone who had lived it could have.
1: Oh, that means so much to me. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think that was the, what you say about about how, how few of our, um, our of our contemporaries have experienced this. That was one of the the sort of main drivers for the book for me, um, because of how I, I just felt so desperately alone when I left the faith. And when I left at the time, everyone I knew, almost everyone I knew, was ranged from religious to extremely religious. And that was when I was 17. But then when I went to college, um, which was an East Coast liberal, liberal arts school, almost everyone I knew ranged from completely not religious, to had maybe gone to Easter every now and then with a grandparent. (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, So it was on both ends. I just, I wanted to write a book that could speak to these varieties of religious experience and make sense to people on um, different parts of the faith spectrum.
0: That's what's so special about Will, I think, as a narrator. Um, It's really remarkable the way you write him, even as, I guess, a sort of apostate but he he doesn't have any cynicism about the community he came from and he really mourns the loss of his faith. So faith isn't presented as this thing that you naturally outgrow, you know, as an intellectual, on an intellectual journey, there's just a natural sort of awakening and you dispense with faith and you move on. It's much, this book is much more captures that it that loss of faith is a grief. He mourns the loss of his faith and he obviously has respect for believers and for the time he spent as a part of a community of believers, he articulates many times the things that he misses about being part of that community. There, There isn't this sense of deep resentment. Or even betrayal, which I think so many, oftentimes the books that are written by our contemporaries about faith are books of leaving the church that are full of a sort of betrayal and resentment of the former community and a sort of awakening into a more intellectual or rational view of the world. And that's not really this book, even though it's critical, certainly of extremism, it's so much more complicated than that one of the really beautiful passages will says people with no experience of god tend to think that leaving the faith would be liberation a flight from guilt rules but what i couldn't forget was the joy that i'd known loving him and that really stopped me in my tracks when i read it because it's so something that just articulates my own experience of growing up and growing out of a faith i i long for it i miss it um so I just, uh, if you could speak a little bit more about that and that complicated experience of um, not having almost the luxury of belief anymore.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and th- and thank you for saying that. I'm I'm finding I'm I'm so moved um, by what you're saying. I mean, I I loved being Christian. I loved I loved believing. Um, you know, as as you well know, I until I was seventeen, I fully believed that I was. Going to live forever. Everyone I knew was going to live forever. Everyone I knew and loved was going to live forever. And that there was an omnipotent being who was looking after every detail of my life and was taking care of everything, and that everything would work out for the good. Which, mm-hmm. to me now, to look back on that, that, that's just astonishing, and it's so different from my worldview now. Um, mm-hmm. And I walked around just feeling, you know, I try, I, I really did try to see everyone as, as. As a child of God, um, I tried to love everyone. I was so joyful, and and I was such a more loving, patient, kind person um, mm-hmm. than I find it easy to be now. And I just I think when I went to college and I started every now any anyone who was a good friend at some point I would know um, I would just sort of say by the way I you know until recently I was I was very Christian I um, I lost my faith not so long ago and everyone just sort of looked at me puzzled and said hey, well, uh, you know, good for you. Now you can drink and have right. sex. <laughs> All right, now you can just move along with life. Yeah, now you can just like happen. have fun like the rest of us. Goodness gracious, glad you got out of there. <laughs> yeah, Woo, near miss. <laughs> I know. Uh-huh. And, it was, and it, um, it was such a large additional layer of pain to have this grief that could not be, that wasn't legible to anyone I knew yeah. as grief in a way, and I don't say this lightly, I'm so close to my parents. Um, I almost envied people who had lost a parent or a sibling because they had a pain that the minute you say, you know, like my mother died a couple of years ago, the people are just like, I'm so sorry. Um, that's, that's truly terrible. That's, I, I, people, people, even if they can't actually empathize with the pain, they're trying and they at least recognize that it's an enormous loss. Whereas with the loss of God, um, almost no one I knew could even see that I was in pain and so that was it it just it just made me feel so unseen and so alone and I wanted to write a book for that girl to just let her know she's not that alone she was never that alone and she doesn't have to feel that way
0: what you say about that grief of losing your faith that if we spoke to each other on those terms when we when someone tells us that they've left a church or that they've if we could say i'm sorry that should really be our first reaction (laughs) i'm sorry so that's really that's really beautiful to think about and especially right now as a very up to very recently practicing catholic and so many people are fleeing the church Mm. right now because of the abuse scandals and i'm seeing it in so many of my peers, this really intense loss and loss of identity, loss of everything. So to think about apologizing, you know, uh, sympathizing with that loss as almost as a living person. And in the novel, that's very that's very present. It's, it's a novel about faith, but it's also so much a novel about grief. And so much of the book turns on mourning and not just a mourning for an absent God, but for absent mothers and fathers and girlfriends. It makes sense of a life of grief, and, but also of a life of faith. Loving someone as an absence is what we all have to do when we're grieving, but it's also a requirement of faith. So I love that parallel throughout the book. I love that I love that when we're meditating on the loss of each other and the loss of human presence, how much it mirrors the loss or the desire for there to be a, a higher power that's looking over us and caring for us and who is present at every moment of our lives.
1: Yeah, I love that. You know, I, I I think something that I I only recently started realizing this. Um, so you know, I worked on this book for 10 years and for almost all of those 10 years, I worked on that, on this book for, I mean, every day, often for hours and hours a day. And throughout, so throughout those 10 years, I was reading and rereading the Bible. I was reading religious thinkers. I, and I, and I realized I, I was listening to, I was listening to a lot of um, church music from the 1800s. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like wow. my life was still saturated with the idea of God. And I think, and I wonder if in writing this book, it was, a last way of being with this God and who might just, I, I can't believe anymore. And mm. I think it's entirely possible that I haven't stopped loving God uh, because love doesn't end just because the object is gone sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I, it's just that I no longer believe in Him. Um, right.
0: That's very Graham Greene. Love- <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, I love Graham
0: Greene so much. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like I can spot another Green fan. This idea that yeah that love doesn't stop because of the absence there's that's repeated again and again in the book i mean it's a motif and even the i think the last sentence of the book is about waiting you <laughs> this idea that we're just waiting we're waiting for the beloved to return and even maybe if we can't believe we we still we don't no longer believe in that person that person or that deity has proven to be something we can't believe in there's this sense of suspension So I just, I think that's just so beautifully done and so moving. And I love that Will and Phoebe throughout are kind of mirrors for each other. Um, Their arcs are almost reversed. So he loses his faith, but she gains a sort of faith when she comes under the influence of John Leal, who was basically a cult leader. But this mirroring happens again and again in the book. You know, Will's mother needs to be babied. Phoebe's mother babies her own child, one child hurts a mother one child saves a mother over and over one mother's abandoned by her husband the other mother flees from her husband so there's all of these mirror this mirror imaging going on of will and phoebe and i thought that was such a powerful way of entering two totally different perspectives on the life of faith um and on the experience of faith so that you're not just speaking to one kind of reader and i wondered if you know it, how intentional that was how using It's not quite different um, point of view. There's Will, the whole story is kind of told from Will's perspective, but I wonder if that was intentional in terms of, you know, writing about faith in a very sincere way for a literary, mostly secular audience.
1: I don't know. I don't think I went into it thinking I want them to have um, mirroring experiences, as you say. Um, But I did, I did know that I wanted that, I mean, Phoebe and Will are very different people in a lot of ways, and but they both have lives in which their lives are no longer intact um, mm-hmm. when they meet. And that, for them, is a is, pulls them toward each other. And, and I think because at that age, at, at 18, 19, when you're in college, there are still people whose lives are feel yeah. relatively intact. Mm-hmm. Um, Trauma and be- bonds,
0: bringing people yes. together
1: <laughs> throughout history. <laughs> All the great relationships. <laughs> And there can be, a, I think there can be a great rift between people who whose lives still feel intact and people whose lives no longer are. Um, and so I think that's, yeah, that's, that's part of the powerful bind between those two. And also part of how how John Leal draws people to himself and to his cult.
0: So, yeah, I just think it's part of the why the novel is so beautifully complicated about religion. We're not getting one set of you know stereotypical views of evangelicalism or extremism and it's very understandable how each person would be drawn into the space that they've been drawn into sort of um orbiting these issues of faith so while Phoebe and Will are mirrors as you point out there there's this there's also a huge gap between them and one of them is this sort of stark cultural difference so Phoebe is very formed by Korean culture or maybe by her mother's rebellion against Korean culture. I, I love this passage where we, we learned that Phoebe's mother wouldn't teach her how to cook because we <laughs> didn't want her to be chained to the kitchen. So she's deliberately withholding life skills that might condemn her daughter <laughs> to repeat her life. It's just such a beautiful, <laughs> profound, and, and it, I think it's, you know, it, it, lots of women can identify with not wanting their daughters to repeat their life choices. So I really loved that. And then, but Will is also, his formation was so different because he grew up Christian and he has an imagination that's been formed by Christianity and he almost, you know, he wishes he could dispense with it sometimes. Mm. And Phoebe sort of feels the same way at moments about how her mother raised her. You know, she kind of wishes she was able to care for herself better, but Mm -hmm. she understands why. So on the subject of the Christian imagination, though, when Phoebe and Will see a picture of their mutual friend, Julian, as a child with his arms flung out, Will immediately sees a crucifixion pose and Phoebe sees a kite. And I loved and there's a sentence that says, I love Phoebe's pagan mind, unpolluted by his blood. That is such a powerful set of ideas that you are almost polluted by this Christian imagery. You can't help but see it everywhere. And that's part of that religious language that you speak so fluently um, that I think is often difficult for someone who wasn't raised in a Christian culture or in the church to Access or to understand. So there's this gap between those of us who are writing about um, these ideas and the potential audience or the potential publisher for the work that we're writing, and we really, in some ways, speak different languages. Um, and you know, has that been a problem for you in writing about religion? Is it something that you've had to consciously think about in writing for um, a literary audience?
1: Yeah, that's that's such a good question, and thank you for and thank you for pulling out um, that line that that. Um, that line meant a lot to me. Thank you. <laughs> oh, it's one of my favorite. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that. Um, it it definitely. So at first, I I was very concerned um, about how I was going to write a book about this experience that would um, that would be at all legible to to a lot of the um, to a lot of the literary people I knew. And I and I mm-hmm. first started learning this in my MFA because I was writing. I was trying to write this book and for for the first two years of its existence um the book was very it was very meditative um it was very sort of like a person walking around sort of thinking about the nature of an absent god um and most of my classmates had had no experience of religion so they were just like there's like this is they were like what is this I, like mm-hmm. often the, like, they like these would say that i mean they weren't being unkind they were providing feedback, and they're saying, this is boring, you know, Um, (laughs) (laughs) and we don't even understand why it's such a big deal. Right, what's uh, the big
0: deal? That's (laughs) so funny. I I went through such a similar experience when I got my MFA um, moving from New Orleans because I was a religion reporter, that's how I started, and then moved into, you know, writing nonfiction and essays and went to a graduate program, and people, I was, there was just such an astonishment on both of our parts, that what i was writing was incomprehensible and what they were saying was incomprehensible to me it took me a really long time to adjust to writing in a culture that didn't have the vocab- like basic vocabulary that i had nor did they understand why it was important to me and it was like you say it wasn't malicious it was just a communication breakdown Um, And I think I, you know, I was very discouraged for a while. And I I think I overcompensated by, you know, leaving my religious material behind for a while and then maybe overcompensated in the other direction too. (laughs) (laughs) started writing too much religious stuff. um, So I'm just, I'm nodding again in recognition that it's, it is a concern. I don't think, I know that people are writing about religion and writing beautifully about religion. And that's what we do at Image, writing about faith and mystery um as literary writers and artists but it is it can be very difficult to sort of find your place for your material even though we know the readers are out there maybe they're not typically readers of literary fiction as we've been told people read literary fiction but i still find it really hard to believe i mean i was looking up i think 71 percent of korean americans identify as christians according to Pew. So that's a lot of readers who aren't you know, necessarily finding their um, formative experiences reflected in contemporary fiction. So I wonder if you have anything to say about that or add to that.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, for me, at least, I found that at least with this book, and we'll see what happens with this book, at least with this book, I found that once I started externalizing these questions and my like absolute obsession with God and faith and the loss of all of this. Um, once I started externalizing these obsessions, that's when the book started really sparking to life. Um, and so that's when that's when the, that's when the cult started coming in. That's when the mm. the act. That's when things actually just started physically blowing up with with explosions um say more about
0: what you mean about externalizing the obsessions
1: externalizing so um so for the for the first two years of the book um the book was really about a a melancholic um young woman wandering around meditating on the nature of an absent god Hmm. which was exactly as fun for people to (laughs) read (laughs) To write as that sounds um, and then and then I and then I started over with essentially the same characters but with everything shaken up and then that was when the cult started coming in and that was when mm-hmm. at the time I volunteered very briefly at a Planned Parenthood as a patient escort um, mm-hmm. which uh, for those for people who don't know that's those are the people who walk. People back and forth from their cars, um, from their cars into the clinic and back to get mm. past the protesters so people feel wow. alone. Um, mm-hmm. And as I was doing that, it was clear, at least, at, least um, at, my, at the clinic where I was volunteering, it was very clear that the protesters were mostly, if not all, Christian from what they were saying and the signs they were holding. Mm-hmm. And I felt this nearly um, physical split between who I used to be and yeah. who I was as a patient escort. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just—and it—and it, and it occurred to me that this is one of the most visible and painful ways um, this country is just completely split on, on its values and, and on what people prioritize. And I think that's when—that's when the—that's when, the, when the healthcare clinics, the abortion clinics, started making their way into my novel.
0: Yeah, I think this is maybe the first literary novel I've ever read where there is um, a, a pro-life protest, first of all, <laughs> but also where there's a pro-life protest where it is both horrifying the, the idea of potential violence against innocent people, against women, um, but at the same time there's a character there who we are deeply invested in by that point who we love very much, who is... Trying to figure out how she feels about this shift in her own morality and values, where she's suddenly a part of this group where she is supposed to disapprove of things um, vehemently that she has believed in for so long, um, to the point of inciting violence if necessary. So I thought the complexity of that, the, of drawing us into love, we love Phoebe by the end of this book. She's <laughs> such a haunting. I mean, she. I still think about her almost every oh day. My those final images of her of, and it, it, the beautiful writing that helps us to um, enter into the um, the pain of loss also just stays with you. So I, I think I we're sort of primed for Phoebe to haunt us after we close the book, which is beautiful, but we're so invested in her by the time she becomes... Esconced in this cult community that she's such a sympathetic character. I have a religious extremist who we identify with and it's more than pity. It's real empathy and understanding um, why she's drawn there because of her own trauma and grief.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for saying that. That makes me, um, yeah, that just, that's, that's wonderful to hear. Another part of why I I was interested in um, writing this particular book, I think is that, I want to phrase this carefully. Um, the Bible is a vast, capacious, self-contradicting book. But the version of the Bible, at least as I understood it, um, and the new te- in the in the New Testament, at least as, as far as I understood it, and the and Christ as far as I understood him, um, Christ is not a moderate and Christ does not ask for moderates. Um mm-hmm. and my views as a you know, as like an enthusiastic 16-year-old, um, I was pretty fanatical. I wasn't, I wasn't mm-hmm. gearing up for I wasn't preparing to become like a once a once a week kind of Christian, you know. I just really mm-hmm. wanted to give my whole life to God, um, and so that kind of devotion um, doesn't feel it doesn't feel alien to me in a way that in the way that I think it does to a lot of people, especially yeah. to secular um, secular people. And I I wanted the book to sort of illuminate how how religious extremists, whether or not they turn violent. Um, you know, people people refer to religious extremists and extremists in general as 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 being monsters, as being just utterly past mm-hmm. comprehension.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think that,
1: that language, that language of incomprehension, of, of of turning, of saying people are monsters, of putting them beyond the pale of humanity, um, mm-hmm. makes it absolutely impossible to to see them as humans and to see and to try to try to try to, yeah, try to try to, in, that separation. I think is, is very harmful.
0: Mm. And that seems like something that only literary fiction can do. Only art can give us that space where we can inhabit those contradictions and hold this in our head at the same time to see what she's doing as hateful and against what we might politically believe in and also to really love her and care for her as a person, as a character. I've been reading some of your essays as well, and there was one or it might have been an interview that you did where you talked about Asian women as a demographic often expected to be quiet and docile, and I think the the quote the exact quote was, "We're routinely labeled the so-called model minority, a hateful idea trying to press us into the service of white supremacy. And I thought about Phoebe when I read that, and I wondered Phoebe is an Asian American, and I wondered how you if that this that idea was playing into your choice to depict her as such, mm, you know she's a- not she's she, she's she's sweet and fun and popular. She's Phoebe. <laughs> 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 but there's so much more there, and to think that that girl is the one who becomes a dangerous extremist is. I, you know, I would just wondered if that, if that was a political choice, if that was a personal choice, or if it was even conscious.
1: Ah, that's such a great question. I don't think anyone's asked that before. Let's see. I think that wasn't a thought that expressly went into it, but that is a question or this, the stereotypes about, about Asian people and Asian women mm-hmm. are certainly something I've, I've, been, I've been very conscious of for a long time and so that of course i think plays into my fiction and into my writing in in significant ways. Mm-hmm. Do you see yourself as being political
0: and being wanting to write more politically?
1: Oh yes. I um i honestly feel as though there is no writing that isn't political. Um, mm-hmm. and i think I and mean, i think more and more i think it's just a when people have said their writing isn't political, I think they're just—I think people aren't conscious of how political their writing is. Um, right,
0: it's naivety.
1: Hmm. Right, and so like if 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 someone would try, if someone were to try to argue that say like, I don't even know, let's say like Updike's fiction isn't political, that would be wild. The man is writing right. about <laughs> the man is writing about um, about often rich, um, white, mis- often extremely mis- misogynistic people. Um, that's that's mm-hmm. political. That's very political. right. Mm -hmm. so a few months after my book came out i had never really talked publicly about about being bisexual in part because um i I think in part because i i married my first i married my college boyfriend um and uh so so i'm you know i'm married to a man um Mm -hmm. and it's it would be hard for me and talking about my being queer would be would be hard for my family and so i think for both of those reasons i just never talked about it, but the number of writers that there are, you can really just count on your hands. Um, and I thought, you know, this is something that I live in San Francisco, you know, all my mm-hmm. friends are, are, are deeply progressive. Um, this is so easy for me to do is to just talk about it. And it, it, I could do so much with, with at such little cost to me. Yeah. And so I just started talking about it and it's been, it's been, the response has 99.9% of it has been amazing. And it's been so wonderful to I mean, I, I get so many messages now from other bisexual, um or otherwise queer um Asian Americans and Korean Americans who are just like, Thank you. Like I I I literally don't know anyone else like this. Or I know of like three other people like this ever out and it's helping me think about how I can how I can be this person I want to be in my own life. And that's that's just been um purely amazing for
0: me. Yeah, that's one thing I really admire about you as I've been getting to know your work is the way that you have used your position to be an advocate for women, for Asian American writers, um, in both reviewing books and, you know, contributing pieces that introduce new writers to a wider audience through various venues. And I think that, um, you know, being a good literary citizen at this point means being a good citizen. So I feel like we don't, yeah, we don't have much choice but to take a stand. And one of the things you wrote that I found so powerful was the essay in the Paris Review that was called On Being a Woman in America While Trying to Avoid Being Assaulted. And that was so widely shared and that you you listed all the ways that you protect yourself just on an average day. It's really a list of all the things that w- almost every woman has to do um, without thinking all day long. And it was like all of us who were reading were just nodding along in agreement, um, but we maybe didn't even realize that we do these things as acts of protection because they're just second nature. Stuff like locking your door as soon as you get in your car or taking your drink to the bathroom at the bar. Um, even having to take it into the stall with you, (laughs) which is (laughs) like, really, this is gross, but I don't (laughs) want to, you know, get date raped. So yeah. Um, and then her measuring exactly how nice to be to a stranger without encouraging him or angering him, because that Mm. would also be terrifying. Um, all that extra mental, mental and emotional labor, as we're calling it now, that's invisible and exhausting. Um, and it's just one of those things that someone needed to say and suddenly every woman feels this tremendous um, sense of recognition and a, a, a sort of a relief that we didn't even know we needed. We didn't even know it was possible to feel. I think that's really, it's really powerful. You wrote in that essay that men ask you sometimes why there's sexual violence in your novel Mm-hmm. Uh, or why there's so much of it, and your answer was, perhaps sexual violence shows up in my novel the way light does, or dialogue. It's so intrinsically a part of my life that I find it hard to imagine leaving it out.
1: Thank you. Thank you. You're going to make me cry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, that, yeah, that essay, that essay came about because, you know, it was after those, after those terrible Supreme Court hearings, and I was just in a rage, as was everybody I knew, especially. Yes. Um, You know, especially women, especially non-binary people, I think were extra angry, of course. And I, yeah, I just started watching myself, um, everything I do in a completely average, unexciting, not scary day. Um, And I just, I just started flying into a, a, yeah, an even deeper rage because I learned, I I just, it was just part of my life to take all these measures every day, just to try to avoid being assaulted. And I think something that I've realized, um, again, this is a fairly recent realization. I mean, I'm I'm full of shame about a lot. Like, I've, you know, I'm ashamed about random things I've done throughout the day, how I inter- interact with someone at Trader Joe's. Um, but I'm, I think I'm, I've i been very lucky in some ways in that I'm not at all ashamed of being, I love being a woman. Um, I love being Korean American. I love being an immigrant. I love being bisexual. Like, these things do not shame me. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I can if I just talk about these these aspects of my life the more I do so anytime I have this I I came up I came to this realization because I just like every now and then we'll like talk about Korean food because I like Korean food it's delicious um (laughs) (laughs) and somebody um and and a and a fellow writer um who wrote a piece for the Washington Post she said she said something just like thank you for thank you for tweeting about and like Instagramming about Korean food she was like I didn't even realize how ashamed I was of Korean food until I saw all your posts about it and how you just keep talking about it and like that, that pride um, Mm -hmm. affected me. And I was like, oh, that wasn't even something. (laughs) I just really like Korean food. (laughs) Right, exactly. And so um, in, in, in these ways, I feel I've been very lucky. I just somehow was raised in a family that never made me feel lesser than for being a girl. Um, They never... I, I grew up in a high school in a town that was predominantly Asian in Southern California. I went to public high school that was predominantly Asian. Um, and so I never grew up ashamed of the food that, I, that, I, that my family ate. Um, so I feel as though I have these bizarre, relatively unusual, I've been learning, relatively unusual sources of strength that I'm very grateful for. Mm-hmm. And I love that I can, I can share that and try to give some of that to other people too.
0: That's really beautiful. And it's, it's just beautiful to watch both... The novel being, has been so well received and has moved so many people, and you are you're continually speaking um, and telling stories that people recognize themselves in. That are, um, yeah, that maybe we haven't had someone speaking for us or presenting or, or our experience to the world. It's really it's really moving to see. So thank you so much for the book and for all of your work and for being with me today.
1: Thank you so much. This was this was really wonderful. It was really special to get to talk with you like this.
0: You've been listening to the Image Podcast, produced by Roy Salman and Cassidy Hall. Our music is by Sister Sinjin. For more information and to subscribe to the Print Journal, please visit the Image website at www.imagejournal.org. There, you can also learn more about each episode of this podcast and find links to books and other resources discussed. You can also access back issues of the print journal through the image archive. To learn more about how you can support the creation of this podcast and the artists we feature, visit patreon.com slash image podcast. If you become a patron, you'll receive some exclusive image merchandise, access to exclusive content and more. Your pledge will help us continue the conversation about art, faith, and mystery.